This podcast, The Two Mats, is sponsored as ever by the New European Newspaper. And we've got a very special subscription offer for you, a new one, where you can get a free bollocks to Brexit passport cover. That's right, you heard that right, folks. It's a burgundy, like vegan leather, beautifully designed passport cover. Pleather. To, to have pleather, that's what, that's what they call it, isn't it? Pleather. To hide your um, new British blue. The shame of the, the blue shame, The shame passport. of the blue passport. And you can get your free bollocks to Brexit passport cover free with a subscription to the New European from just £1 a week. So to take this fantastic offer, and trust me, if you like this podcast, you will absolutely love the New European, go to theneweuropean.co.uk forward slash two mats. That's the number two, M-A-T-T-S, and there's a link in the show notes. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hi there, Alistair Campbell here, Editor-at-Large of the New European. Write a weekly column covering politics, Europe, Scotland, Ireland, mental health, sport. Lots and lots and lots and lots of stuff. And if you'd like to enjoy more from the New European, please join us. Subscribe at theneweuropean.co.uk forward slash subscribe. Hello, snowflakes, and welcome back to the New European podcast. My name's Steve Anglesey. I'm the editor of the New European. We've got a special offer on new subscriptions to the New European for listeners of this podcast. The great price of just £1 a week for digital or £2 a week for print and digital. Just go to theneweuropean.co.uk slash TNE podcast and you can get a whole year of TNE for just £52 for an annual digital subscription or £104 for an annual print subscription. What do you get for a pound a week for new digital subscribers? You get unlimited articles on our website and app. You get the latest digital edition of our award-winning newspaper, five years of digital back issues, and you get weekly emails from the New European. Uh, for £2 a week, you get all that and our award-winning print edition too. So that's the neweuropean.co.uk slash TNE podcast. New subscribers can join us from just £1 a week for digital or £2 a week for print and digital. Coming up on today's podcast, let's head for the sunlit uplands as we look back at all the great successes of Brexit so far with the writer, broadcaster and former BBC correspondent John C. Bloom. And Alistair Campbell says, Jurgen Klopp would be a great Prime Minister, but which sports people would you like to see in number 10? And of course, we'll put more blowhard backbenchers, malevolent ministers, putrid pundits, they all go into our Hall of Shame. 
But first, there's news that a front bench Tory MP has been seen watching pornography in the House of Commons. It's pretty grim stuff, this, of course. But officials in Parliament should be able to hunt down who it is just by studying the details of internet searches from within the Commons chamber, you'd have thought. Just look for things that might give a hint to the identity of the person that was searching for them. Things like Victorian nanny's strict Latin grammar lesson or sexy non-dominatrix who'll do anything for a green card or indeed gullible posh women up for a number 10 party who I haven't cheated on my partners with yet. But really, that's not the week's big news, is it? It's not Angela Rayner's legs or Keir Starmer's pizza either. It's Rishi Sunak telling the cabinet that interest rates are going up so much that mortgage payments for the average home are going to rise by £1,000 a year. It's, it's economists saying Brexit alone has put food prices up 6%. And when you roll that all up with energy prices up 54%, the rise in national insurance, it's getting very expensive to live in a poorly run country presided over by a morally bankrupt PM. In this week's edition of The New European, Alistair Campbell writes a personal letter to Jurgen Klopp, the Liverpool manager, urging him to get into politics. So we asked you, New European podcast listeners, which sports people you would like to see as Prime Minister. Alan Dixon says, I don't know about Prime Minister, but I would like to see Boris Becker as the Tory party treasurer. Is this too soon? I think it probably is, Alan. Exbone Malone says, Gary Neville would do well. Articulate, passionate, his beliefs are grounded in reality. He's willing to listen to others, uh, able to bring people on either side of an argument together. Kelly G says... Not Kenny G. Kelly G says, I would like to see the amateur five-a-side player Keir Starmer be Prime Minister and the Japanese schoolboy rugby player Boris Johnson not be Prime Minister. Uh, Kevin Montague says, I would like to see Alex Scott be Prime Minister. She upsets all the right people. She certainly upset Digby Jones, isn't she? On Twitter, Ricardo says, Sir Alex Ferguson, because he has more knowledge and understanding of social justice and responsibility than any of this cohort of sleazy, lazy, out-of-touch Tories. Gary McGregor says Marcus Rashford for the same reason. He's younger, more in touch with the future leaders of business and government, and he's from a minority background and... Maximum Bob says, Harry Maguire, I'm not sure he'd be any good at politics. I just want him to stop playing football. Uh, Waldo Dobbs says, Welsh rugby referee, Nigel Owens for me. Uh, His no-nonsense approach uh, and his ability to make tough decisions make him stand out. Lord Ivor says, after news that the front bench Tory MP has been caught watching porn in the Commons, can we just exclude all players of pocket billiards? Veronica Wright says, Gareth Southgate, he is an intelligent man who's demonstrated an ability to motivate and mentor a team to high achievement. He has an excellent moral compass. He didn't go to Eton. Gary Lineker is picked by Ella Forever. She says uh, his party should be named Centre Forward. And let's close with a thoughtful one now from Alan Bailey. Uh, He says, what makes a prime minister is the love of competition. The same is true in sport. In order to get to the top, you have to be resolutely competitive. What would make a good prime minister, on the other hand, would be a lack of competitive spirit, but a real desire to work out what's best for the country and the competence, both to make people see that it's best and to carry it through. We are unlikely to find those qualities among politicians or sports personalities. Now joining us is John T. Bloom, who writes about the economy every week 
for the New European. John C. is a journalist and broadcaster who covered both business and Europe for the BBC and so is ideally placed for us to ask this. So John C. Bloom, when when Lord David Frost says, as he did this week, that Brexit has gone remarkably smoothly and that there is little bad news to talk about, what are your what's your reaction to that? It's not going to be a very good podcast because it kind of leaves me speechless, really. <laughs> it's just kind of it's quite staggering that um anyone could think that. If if anyone wants to know what's really happened, uh there was also a speech given yesterday by Adam Posen, who yes was uh, used to be a member of the Bank of England uh, Monetary Policy Committee and is a very, very prestigious um, international economist and head of the Peterson Institute in uh, Washington, which is about the most preeminent economic think tank there. And he gave a talk at UK and a Changing Europe yesterday when he just basically laid out the economic damage, the damage done to trade uh, and to Britain's reputation in the world and to the things that it's really quite good at. Um, all of which were made a complete dog's dinner of by um, a certain Lord Frost, who negotiated uh, the withdrawal agreement and the Northern Ireland Protocol, which he now says uh, needs fixing, and that we really shouldn't um, be talking about Brexit at all because it's all been a huge triumph. Uh, it's It's been uh, economically appalling. It's probably already hit growth by 2 or 3%, with another 3% or more to come. It's reduced foreign investment in this country. It's dramatically hit the amount of trade that the UK does uh, and it's directly affected immigration. So as Adam Posen said, when we when we talk about global Britain, um, that's what we mean. We mean less, less trade with the rest of the world, less immigration with the rest of the world, less investment from the rest of the world. Uh, we just look like a very small country uh, on the edge of Europe. We're not part of any of the major trading groups which are forming around the world. We've decided to go it alone. He describes it as trying to defy gravity. Uh, which doesn't end well. Yes, I mean, in, in his defence, David Frost does have a very nice pair of Union Jack socks. Um, Adam Posen, though, is, of course, you know, he, he worked for the Bank of England, didn't he? He's, one of the headlines from his piece was that most of Britain's inflation problem stems from Brexit. He said it was 80% of current inflation, I think. How can he break it out like that? How can he, how can he sort of apportion all of that, 80% of that, to Brexit? Yes, I think I think it's quite brave of him to do to be quite so precise, but I mean you can you can look at um, you know inflation in other countries which have similar economies, and get them raw materials from similar places, and then you have to ask yourself, well, why is it so bad here? Why is it so much worse? Um, and in, you know, in part, that's things to do with um, supply problems and labour shortages, none of which any of our European competitors seem to have any problem with whatsoever. Um, so yes, a lot of it is down to Brexit. There is a, there are wage demands, there are shortages of drivers and baristas and workers in uh, agriculture and manufacturing, and this just forces uh, wages up. It forces prices up, and then all the kind of supply problems we've been seeing, quite a few of which um, are down to things like COVID and and the war in Ukraine. But we we've basically taken a permanent hit um, from Brexit. We we piled costs onto importers and exporters and they just pass the prices on they Mm. pass they pass those price rises on to the consumer uh and that's what makes it so much worse and there's i mean there's a report this week from the lse isn't there um which uh, i've already mentioned which which said that brexit alone has put food prices up by six percent again 
you know, the Victorian sponge, the Brexit Opportunities Minister, Jacob Rees-Mogg, he said earlier this month that food costs had got nothing to do with Brexit, food costs going up. He said it was global inflation. He said it was the Ukraine crisis. Surely somebody like Jacob Rees-Mogg isn't lying. Well, um, I, don't suppose, I don't suppose he, he'd, 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 well, maybe he does believe this stuff. I never never know. Um, I just find it that, you know, these people live in a kind of, Little, little universe or cult of their own in which um, one, of, one of the reasons you know Brexit is a stupid idea is that everyone who supports Brexit um, always has an answer to everything immediately. And you kind of go, um, not, not many people who support anything else think it's a complete panacea and that um, they know exactly what's going on all the time. But Brexiteers do. And the first thing they say is, well, nothing bad has anything to do with Brexit and, and anything good couldn't have been achieved without Brexit, um, and, you know, including... Uh, you know, the results in the Premier League or something like that. It's just ridiculous that um, they talk like this. Uh, of course, there are added costs because of Brexit, and, and the government knows this. So you have things like, oh, it was a couple of years ago now, the, the, you know, the top civil servants at um, HMRC, had, you know, just calculating how much it would cost to fill out a form um, to export or import something. It's about um, between 30 and £50, pounds. and then how many millions of forms would be needed every year. And they just said, well, this is, a, this is an added cost on British industry of billions and billions of pounds a year forever. And where are they finding that money from? Well, either they're putting their prices up or their profits are being hit, um, or they're not importing as much or exporting as much. And if you look at the trade figures, um, what has actually happened is we're importing about the same as we were, but our exports to Europe have absolutely plummeted. And the simple reason for that is our costs have shot up there is much more red tape. There is much more. It's much slower. It's much more difficult. And funnily enough, all the people in the EU we sold to can find people within the EU to supply those goods and products for them without having to go through all that. So, um, and and they can. The UK is a relatively small market for them, so they don't bother going through the red tape. British exporters probably have to make that effort because they, you know, the EU is such a large market for them. So yes. they'll be taking a massive hit paying all those costs. EU, EU companies are just saying, why should I bother? And there are endless stories. You just have to look around on Twitter and things like that of companies that have stopped supplying um, uh, their products from the UK into uh, the rest of Europe or have set up distribution hubs in the EU. So basically they bypass the UK and especially small and medium-sized companies, because they can't afford the red tape uh, and the added costs, so they just stop. And th this, this, is, this is going to have a devastating effect on the British economy. Uh, we all know that. We can see the figures. Yes. I mean, there was, there was a re another report this week, of course, which said there was no evidence of a sustained hit to UK exports to the EU after Brexit. But, but I'm guessing that... You know, that takes into account some of the stuff that you've mentioned about people setting up inside the EU. And it also takes into account the, the fact that the, the, the really small SMEs are, are, are just stopped altogether. Yeah. And actually, the, the, small, the smallest ones are the most difficult to measure. They, right. don't really, they don't really turn up in the stats. So we, we know the big companies have just um, bitten the bullet and, and kept exporting. We, we know that um, Lots of small and medium-sized ones haven't, so maybe some of the bigger companies are picking up market share and so on. Hmm. Um, but their products will become more expensive in Europe over time, uh, less available and less attractive. So there, there will be an effect on that. But it, I mean, it just it just points to the fact that the UK companies have just had to take the pain because they they desperately need to keep exporting. 
the big the big factor is we're just not importing as much and you only have to look at the queues at, at dover to understand that yes if you if you're a shipper um or a manufacturer in in europe and you send stuff to the uk and then it takes an extra 20 hours for your truck to get back because it can't get through the the red tape at dover you're not going to send it next time. I mean, why would you bother? Or you're going to put your prices up massively, um, or you're just going to say to somebody, um, well, you, you pick it up uh, and, and put up with all the pain because I'm not going to do it. Um, so so it does become a, you know, it, it, all these things, this friction, this grit that's continually being thrown into the system has an effect. Yes, it does. I mean, talking of Dover, and, and you know, there's, there's there's a discussion of that in your your piece for the newspaper this week has got the rather good headline when hell freezes Dover. Um, but, um, but I was really struck by an exchange between Ben Bradshaw MP and Grant Shapps, who's the, the transport secretary, obviously in, in Commons committee uh, the other day. And, and I don't know if you've seen this, it, it, it's, it's fantastic because at one point Grant Shapps just stops himself. He says, you know, I know that a lot of people try and blame everything on Brexit. But he's on the point of saying, he says, on this occasion, it's genuine. And then he stops himself um, because he's clearly about to say on this occasion, it actually is true. Yeah. Um, but Brent Bradshaw says Dover has experienced serious disruption. Kent has turned into a massive car park. The warnings of the critics of your government's Brexit deal have come true, to which Grant Shapp says, I must object to the idea that this is something to do with Brexit. It's to do with P&O, bad weather, lots of people coming back from travel, a combination of problems. Surely Grant Shapps isn't lying as well, is he? Well, some of those factors did play a role. Yeah, but, clearly. But we know that, this, we know that Brexit's on top of it. And, and, and the kind of killer fact is that it, today they've announced that once again they're, they're delaying tests and checks at Dover, which they promised to introduce, I think, at the beginning of this year. They've been kick, they're kick, kicking the can down the road for ages now, and I've lost count of the number of times that they've delayed tests on agricultural food products and and everything else. But the fact is, they were supposed to build a computer system that made all of this kind of, uh, if not painless, at least relatively well-oiled and, and smooth, and they've completely failed. It's collapsed again and again. Um, they, they can't, you know, government has got a terrible reputation for um, technology, introducing computer systems and things like that, and they failed once again when... You know, the one thing Brexit should have told them is that they've got six years to prepare for this and they better start spending some money. And it's not happening in France or, or Belgium or anywhere like that, you notice. They actually just employed some more people and and, and got everything ready for Brexit. The, the, the one country that was leaving didn't. Yes. And so we, that, well, that's the reason we have all these massive queues from time to time is the system is collapsing. Dover uh, is too small uh, and crowded to build this infrastructure. So uh, they have a problem with that. They need actually to process the lorries well away from Dover uh, and then let them pass through. And none of this would be necessary if they'd actually come to a sensible deal. So going back to Adam Posen again, one of the things he said right at the end of his speech is the, you know, the only sensible economic policy is for someone to get into power and quietly, if necessary, reverse many of the Brexit policies that have been introduced. You need to be in a kind of EFTA, you need to be like Norway or Switzerland and have very, very smooth borders you, you have to take the regulations that the EU is passing because it is a rule setter and you are not. Uh, and everything will be reasonably smooth. You will still suffer, but you will suffer far less. But nobody in government is even talking about that. 
you could you could you can get cigarette paper between agricultural standards here and in the EU, and there's very very little reason to change them. So why not just agree to them and then don't have any checks at the borders? No, we can't do that. We must have the sovereign power to change our own agricultural standards. Nobody wants to change them. Nobody feels it's necessary. Nobody sees any advantage in it. In fact, there's considerable disadvantages in it. And everything has to be checked at the border as a result. Or it would be if the government hadn't delayed them once again because it hasn't got the computer system in place. It hasn't got the um, lorry parks in place. And it knows that the delays that will be created will be even more than they are at the moment, that prices will rise, that food prices will soar, that actually food shortages might become a problem, and therefore it's not going to introduce them. It's a complete admission of defeat, a complete admission that what everybody said would happen has happened, and they are incapable of dealing with it. And we've talked about this before, haven't we, on on, on this podcast, the idea that Britain should just go back to the EU, be sensible, that's for better access to the single market do some of the smaller things that you and adam posen talked about there but instead the government is digging in once again and it's talking about scrapping the northern ireland protocol which seems to come up all the time there's obviously elections coming up both here and in northern ireland if if that did break down what are the implications for trade there and, and for people's pockets well, th- th- that's a really worrying one. And I, I, blo- I blog a lot of, on this on um, Substack and Twitter. Um, and people, you know, people can follow me on Twitter if they want to, on Jaunty Bloom Biz and read about it every day. But the, the, the rev- uh, tearing up the Northern Ireland protocol is basically a hand grenade moment. Um, you, you can argue all you want about um, whether there is a, you know, whether they, it, the effects will be disastrous in Northern Ireland or not. That's actually a, a kind of sideshow. Um, because many of the firms uh, and people in Northern Ireland are quite in favour of the deal they got at the moment because it means they're still in the single market. So if you want to invest in, in, in the EU and the UK, Northern Ireland is the one place to do it because you have seamless access, pretty much seamless access to both markets. But that's not good enough for the government who um, negotiated the very deal and, and are now threatening to tear it up. But by tearing it up, they're breaking international law. And um, they are basically spitting in the face of the EU and daring them to do something about it. The EU isn't stupid. It isn't going to start a trade war immediately. Um, But it can quietly point to to the government and say, well, you you haven't introduced those checks at Dover you promised to yet. We haven't done anything about that so far, but we could. Mm. You've now torn torn up the Northern Ireland Protocol. Well, um, that means uh, we can't trust you on anything else. So we're just going to suspend your membership of this and that. And if we want to, we, we could impose tariffs on you over this. And that would have a devastating effect. It's not just on Northern Ireland trade. It's, it's, it wouldn't just be Northern Ireland trade. It would be all our trade with the EU. And the, and the European Union has a, a, a fantastic record of fighting trade wars, and it's very specific. It finds things that are made in marginal constituencies, and it puts tariffs on them. And it finds things that are made in cabinet ministers, uh, constituencies and it puts tariffs on them and then it puts tariffs on things that are you know um, very popular or uh, won't won't hit its producers very much but will hit British producers very much um, and it can do this and I don't I don't think it would do it immediately I think it would try and negotiate and try and placate but in the end it would uh, it would turn around and say right well if you if you're breaking the Northern Ireland protocol that's basically the whole deal gone yeah 
and we would uh, we would basically be pushed back to the hard Brexit that some of the absolute Brexit ultra idiots wanted, and we would you know oh it's okay to trade on WTO trade uh, t- trade terms. No, it's not. It's, I think there's only two countries in the world that do it, and um, one of them is North Korea. It's it's just appallingly stupid idea, but it, it, it it's it and but it's being done because the government wants to pick a fight. Yes, all this thing about oh the Remainers don't want about Brexit all the time. Not as much as the Brexiteers do. They don't. It's oh Brexit is not yet pure enough. It's not complete enough. Um, we've still got some vague ties. Um, there's a border down the Irish Sea that's been imposed on us. I mean, Lord Frost, when he was talking the other night, was talking about how, uh, you know, he had to accept this because they had him over a barrel. Well, you know, we were told for years that we had them over a barrel. Mm. Um, and at the time we were told it was a, a giant success and a triumph and it was finished and it was oven ready. And, and years on, it seems it was a complete disaster, but nothing to do with the people who negotiated it, who were still in government. And we were all, we all going to feel the pain of this. If this, you know, Ukraine is bad enough, but we, if Ukraine plus a trade war with the with the trading bloc we do fifty percent of our trade with is suicidal, utterly suicidal. I mean, just going back to Adam Posen again, he has said previously, and he said yesterday, this is the equivalent of the UK starting a trade war, but with itself. No other country in world history has decided to make its trading relationships with its. Um, biggest trade partners, worse, of its own volition, for no good economic reason at all. It's just a trade war on itself. And that's why we're suffering, because nobody else is really suffering. It's a slightly more inconvenient for some European countries other than ourselves. But we are suffering because we've basically done this to ourselves. This is self-harm in economic terms, and there's no way out of that. And they are locked in, aren't they? And um, I, I know we've, uh, we're, we're running short on time. I, I just wanted to end with something that I think probably previews your next piece for the New European, which is on, which is on sort of, well, it's on the long-standing Tory incoherency on the economy, which, which incidentally, the Conservatives have now slipped behind Labour, haven't they, in the in polls when you ask, who do you trust most on the economy? But in your piece on trade, you talk about this 19th century economist called David Ricardo. What's what's he got to do with all of this? And how does that kind of uh, tie up this uh, insanity? Well, Ricardo, Ricardo basically came up with the, the, the concept of comparative advantage, which is um, countries should uh, concentrate on doing what they are better at. Hmm. So um, if you're British, it would have been making... Um, uh, wool um, or during the Industrial Revolution, steel and coal and all those kind of things. And the French should concentrate on making wine and cheese. And uh, the Americans should concentrate on making cars and, you know, bowling alleys or you know, whatever you're good at. But what, what, he, what, he, what his economic theory proved is that you should do that even, even if actually you could make these things well yourself because there's something else you could make better. Mm. Um, which sounds a bit difficult to explain, but what it basically means is uh, importing stuff that somebody else can make more cheaply for you always makes sense. And what you now have is a government which is basically saying, no, that's wrong. Um, What we want to do is stop importing cheap European products and make them more expensively here ourselves. Because that would be good for British industry because it will employ more more people and, uh, you know, it will return production to the UK. That's economic illiteracy. because, Because actually... All you're doing is forcing up prices 
uh, forcing British companies to make things they're not particularly good at making and stop making things they are very good at making. So it, it hits your productivity, it hits your wealth, uh, it hits your trade, all kinds of uh, consequences. I mean, you see your tax revenue falling because we're just not as wealthy as we thought we were going to be and all those kind of issues. And and it's just it just shows the extent that the Brexiteers are, are just self-delusional, that when you point out to them that they are... Um, breaking an economic law which has proven to be consistently accurate for 200 years, um, they turn around and say, no, 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 we know better. Um, you know, this is good for Britain because more things are being made here. No, it's not. You know, replacing, uh, you know, making things uh, here uh, when they can be made far more efficiently in Germany or France or Italy is not to your economic benefit. It's an economic cost. And that's what Ricardo proved 200 years ago. And it's an economic law. I mean, it doesn't mean it's infallible. But it stood the test of time for 200 years until Brexit came along when apparently uh, we decided we don't need it anymore and we know better. Um, so it's just, I just think it's a perfect example of this kind of um, wishful thinking um, or maybe even double thinking or really in terms that the Brexiteers um, tie themselves up in knots about uh, every time they try and justify something. Um, it is just that, um, you know, Brexit is bad for the British economy, full stop. Uh, and if you want to try and show it isn't, you've got to kind of throw out 200 years of accepted economic knowledge. And you, I mean, <laughs> and still the facts tell you that it's bad for the British economy, but you've got to ignore the facts and ignore all the economic knowledge of 200 years in an attempt to prove otherwise. And no amount of um, union jack socks are going to be able to do that for you, I would have thought. Yeah, probably manufactured abroad as well. Almost certainly. Thanks so much for joining us again, John C. Bloom. You can read John C. on the damage that Brexit continues to do to the British economy and British trade in issue 289 of the New European. Don't miss uh, him on uh, the Conservatives and the Curse of Thatcher in issue 290 of the New European, by the way, to get full access to all the archive of Jaunty's pieces for us. Why not take advantage of our offer for new subscribers, the great price of just £1 a week for digital or £2 a week for print and digital. Just go to the neweuropean.co.uk slash TNE podcast. So yes, once again, that's the neweuropean.co.uk slash TNE podcast. Uh, get a whole year of TNE for £52 for an annual digital subscription £104 for an annual print and digital subscription. New subscribers can join us for just £1 a week for digital, £2 a week for print and digital. What a deal. Uh, that is better than uh, David Frost and Boris Johnson's deal. Certainly now, before we go to uh, the Hall of Shame, I just want to remind you about a special series of podcasts from the New European. On the night between November 23rd and November 24th, 33 people were trying to stay alive in the English Channel. They were in a tiny inflatable, too many of them, and it was deflating. They called for help over and over again but nobody came to help them. By morning, they were dead. This was the worst tragedy of its kind, and it took place in one of the world's busiest shipping routes between two of the world's richest countries. In the days that followed, we learnt more about the people who died 
men, women and a young child. But their stories were soon eclipsed. First, there was a political row over who was responsible for the deaths. Then the story faded away to be overtaken by government scandals and the coronavirus pandemic. The new European has spent a month retracing the journeys of some of those who perished. Where did they come from? Why did they leave? What drew them to Britain? And why did they have to die when the ships that could have saved their lives were so close? In this three-part series, we tell their stories because they deserve to be told. And we ask, what can be done to fix a system that's so inhumane? The whole series of the 27 is now available to stream or download in the same New European feed where you found this episode. Uh, And another great podcast from the New European is Charlie Connolly's Great European Lives, Series 1 and Series 2 available now, telling the stories of remarkable Europeans in short 10-minute bites. It's available uh, where you got this podcast or just search for Great European Lives Podcast. Uh, now it's time for the Hall of Shame, of course, where we put blowhard backbenchers, malevolent ministers, putrid pundits, things that get my goat generally, and Widdicombe back in the Hall of Shame for a terrible column in the awful Daily Express. That was never in doubt, was it? Uh, what is surprising is that Anne Widdicombe has come out against Jacob Rees-Mogg and his plan to get people back into the office. He's been leaving passive-aggressive notes on their uh, seats, hasn't he? Um, I don't know if you've seen that. Uh, sorry, I missed you, that kind of thing. Uh, you um, skiving, feckless uh, person. Um, Anne Widdicombe has come out against Jacob Rees-Mogg and his war on WFH, and she's got a devastating analogy on her side there is a slight problem with it Uh, see if you can spot it because Anne writes I produce this page at home whether I write it at 6am noon or 6pm is irrelevant as long as it is interesting well yes I did say there was a slight flaw there Uh, elsewhere you'll be relieved to know that Anne Widdicombe also writes readers will know that I keep this page of Sussex's Friso and then there is quite a lot Uh, of writing about how terrible uh, Prince Harry and Meghan are. Uh, Nadine Doris is in the Hall of Shame, of course, her disastrous TikTok post in which she explained her role as culture secretary. Uh, We're responsible for making sure you have super fast broadband so you can downstream your movies, she said, um, adding that she was also in charge of tennis pitches. And I think that is what they call a double fault. Uh, Grant Shapps, who we mentioned earlier, is in the Hall of Shame. He boasted to the Daily Mail that Britain had axed an EU law uh, that would have added £50 to ride-on lawnmower insurance insurance premiums annually. Uh, Grant Shapps said, Leaving the EU was always about doing what's best for Britain, freeing ourselves from nonsensical laws, taking back control, sacking this nonsensical EU rule will protect the pockets of hard-working British people as we continue to help ease the cost of living pressures. This is another Brexit uh, win. Uh, and indeed, it would have been another Brexit win, I suppose, if the EU hadn't already uh, repealed the law, making what Grant Shapp said a complete, oh, what's the word? Lie. Yes, he, he was lying, wasn't he, Grant Shapps, when he said all of that and uh, and I think he was probably lying uh, as we heard from Johnny Bloom 
about the Dover stuff as well. I'm sure this chap's a liar. I don't know. We could ask his character witnesses, can't we? Michael Green, Corinne, Stock Heath, Sebastian Fox, all of those people will stand up for him. Um, but finally, in the Hall of Shame is the sleepy-eyed Brexiteer Andrew Bridgen, because um, a High Court judge has ruled that Andrew Bridgen lied under oath uh, and was abusive, arrogant and aggressive um, in a family dispute about his um, family's potato and veg business. Um, Andrew Bridgen has always said he resigned from that business because he was ousted in a power struggle with his brother and the High Court judges ruled uh, that he actually resigned because um, he'd worked out that it would reduce the amount uh, of money that he owed his first wife, Jackie, in divorce proceedings. Um, that's Andrew Bridgen there. Uh, the court heard that on one board meeting, uh, Andrew Bridgen called his fellow directors liars and thieves and a team of wankers. And it must be such a change for him to get away from liars, thieves and wankers and then go and deal with the ERG and the rest of the Conservative Party. That was the New European Podcast with Steve Anglesey. Thanks to you for listening, as always. Thanks to John T. Bloom. And thank you to our producer, Eleanor Longman-Rood. A reminder of our special offer for new subscribers. If you go to the neweuropean.co.uk slash TNE podcast, you can join us for the great price of just £1 a week for digital or £2 a week for print and digital. It's the neweuropean.co.uk slash TNE podcast. Please subscribe if you don't want to uh, miss an episode of this podcast and give us nice ratings and lovely reviews. Uh, you can take part in our Facebook readers group. You can follow us on Twitter at The New European and you can follow me on Twitter at Sanglesey at S-A-N-G-L-E-S-E-Y. Until the next time we meet, so long, snowflakes. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.